Hi everyone, this is Anthony Diaz with The Pop Health Show, and this show is for anyone that has a passion for making people healthier in this world. And super excited today to have Rick Lemoyne on the call. Dr. Rick Lemoyne is the CMIO at Sharp Healthcare San Diego. Very vast background in healthcare. He's been working on some really interesting things, and I'm really excited to have him on the show to share his story, what he's been doing, and the breadth and scope of what he's been doing. But uh, most importantly, uh, Dr. Lemoyne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Great, great. Well, thanks for be- being here. Thank you for making time this morning. And I'd love to hear a lot more about, I, I guess, your origin story, how you started off, what are the steps, what are the things you went through throughout your life to get you to where you're at today? Well, I uh, would start my medical career with a cardiopulmonary arrest I suffered when I, I think I was 18 years old. It was between my first and second year of college. I had uh, minor surgery on my knee, and I think that what happened is I got a intravenous injection by accident of a narcotic for pain control, and the patient who was in the bed next to mine was astute enough to realize that something had bad, something bad had happened, and called uh, the nurse to come back. Uh, this was way back in 1967, I think, mm. and it just so happened in this small town in Nova Scotia that one of the new doctors had been on the first cardiac arrest team at Bellevue in New York, and he helped to resuscitate me. And uh, I think I saw the light then and got the calling for medicine. I did my undergrad in Nova Scotia. I went to medical school at Dalhousie in Halifax in Nova Scotia, and then was a Medical Research Council of Canada fellow for a couple of years, about three years Mm. uh, in retrospect at UCSD in San Diego. And and that started a uh, lifelong back and forth four times between Halifax and San Diego. And then I ended up in San Diego in 98 or 99, and I've been here ever since. Uh, I've been, this is my second time with Sharp Healthcare. I'm an intensivist by training. Mm -hmm. I still practice. Um, We are a a non, we're a community-based, very high acuity um, or uh, non-academic organization. So when I'm on call at seven o'clock at night in uh, one of our larger hospitals, uh, as we say in the business, I'm the man. Um, <laughs> it is a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great ride. It's uh, mm-hmm. just incredible. Uh, I, I'm 71. I did my boards again two years ago, mm-hmm. and this uh, this winter I took the uh, two day critical care ultrasound course, which was I think one of the hardest things I've ever done mentally. It started out being like I was trying to fine-tune the picture on a 1950s television by switching <laughs> the, you know, the rabbit ears. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, now I go around with my ultrasound machine um, looking at hearts and uh, doing a lot more than just catching a vein for a, a, a CVP line. It, it's just remarkable what's happening uh, to hospital-based medicine and critical care. In particular, over the last five or six years, lots of great technology, uh, still lots of cultural uh, things to try and address. And I, I would put a plug in for the 
uh, two career path that mm-hmm. a lot of us have. I think it, I think it uh, helps to prevent burnout. Uh, critical care is a uh, potentially real burnout kind of situation. Being able to switch between an administrative job like I have as CMIO, a lot of people think that means career mostly is over. Uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it, it doesn't. Uh, so I deal a lot with uh, EMR issues and electronic issues. Sharp is an incredible organization to work with and to work mm-hmm. for. I've been involved in a lot of our uh, innovation uh, efforts lately with uh, things like uh, genomics, digital surgery, uh, that kind of stuff. So when I kind of get tired of that stuff, I can switch and do a little bit more of the clinical stuff. And um, mm-hmm. when I switch back, I'm, I'll, I always feel like I uh, ha- had a rest uh, from one and are ready to tackle the challenges uh, of another. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Dr. Lemoyne, this is this is powerful. I really I really appreciate uh, the blend of your career and obviously the the, the role straddling that you have. It, it feels like you're you know the player coach. You know you've seen this, you've seen that, you've been there, done that. You've seen so many patterns, and so being able to take that at a at a central point at a scalable level to influence you know processes, technologies, and you know the, the 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 mindset that Sharp should have on some of these things is pretty fascinating. And along those lines, I guess you mentioned a couple of things: genomics, um, you know, information technology. Um, but what are some themes in healthcare that you're 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 touching on, researching, working on that really capture your fascination these days? That really have you excited? Maybe you can you know talk about one or two of those, and 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 also why they're so intriguing to you. Well, on the hospital-based front, I think that we're at this stage where physicians need to accept that electronic health in terms of the EMR is here to stay. Uh, And there's no sense expending energy fighting that uh, beast anymore. But what we want to do is try and optimize it. Uh, I would love to have an EMR that is looking over my shoulder, preventing me from making a mistake and helping me to make the right decision every time I see a patient. I'm not sure why some of the bigger EMR companies haven't gone into the diagnosis piece. I I suspect it's because of fear of litigation, uh, etc., but wouldn't it be great is that after you've recorded the information, after you put your thoughts down, the computer could say to you, have you thought of X, Y, or Z? Not to kind of put you in your place, but just to be that colleague in the background that's able to look at everything and, and, and perhaps come up with something uh, that for one reason or uh, another uh, hasn't occurred to you in the heat of the moment. I end up on the uh, internet uh, to look up references, to look up other information virtually every night that I'm on call. Mm. And uh, it's, it's, it's just uh, second nature now mm-hmm. to be able to do that. There's still a lot of work that we need to do in optimizing the workflow for physicians uh, when they're in the EMR, when they're accessing patient data. And I w- would encourage all my practicing intensivists and hospitalists who are out there to get involved 
in the process of optimizing the EMR. And if there is not a clear pathway for doing that at your institution, make one because mm. it is, uh, it's the people who are, you know, we like to use the term at the pointed end of the spear or in the trenches who mm-hmm. really know what the best workflows are. And you have to stand up, speak up for yourself and, and help the analysts, the software engineers, the hardware engineers that are out there. There are, there are many, many applications now for AI and we really need frontline people to be able to direct those so we don't go down some of the silly paths that we have in the past with workflows around uh, medication reconciliation. Uh, for example, it's taken a long, long time to get that where it is today. I think that could have been a lot faster, a lot easier with frontline people involved. There are mm-hmm. still some issues with MedRec, W-R-E-C-K, as we call it. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's only frontline people who can help straighten that out. Super fascinating, Rick. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. And as you're, as you're describing it through, um, it's like when I was growing up and looking at the old Disney movies, there was always like the, uh, I think at the, at the time, the avatar, the main mascot was Jiminy Cricket, right? From like Pinocchio yeah. and how he was like, you know, on his shoulder and always like helping him and always saying the right thing and kind of that wise voice. Um, and, and it feels like uh, maybe that's a whole EHR in itself, the Jimmy Cricket <laughs> EHR that prescribes exactly what you need to do and when. But um, I, I, to modernize it a little bit, it's like there's there's Siri on our phones now, and there's Amazon Alexa, and that would be pretty interesting to see, you know, some sort of really super dynamic way for workflow optimization, letting you know what you missed out on, what you're what you're missing. Uh, what you should be doing next and why, right? And th- it feels like that's among us. But rem- remind me again. I don't. I can't remember what EHR that Sharp is using. But it, it, curious on the EHR that you guys are using. But do you see this innovation and this this leapfrog opportunity in going to a smart EHR? Um, do you see that coming from like a Cerner, an Epic, um, or maybe you can share your thoughts on like where where. Where's this innovation going to come from? Where do you, where do, how do you see it coming together? Well, I, I, th- I think the, the competition between Cerner and Epic, who really are the, are, are the main two players, is, is going to be a big piece in moving this forward. And, and it seems over the years that I, that I have followed both of those. We're, we're a Cerner shop uh, in the hospital, and for a portion of our um, ambulatory practices, we are a uh, uh, use all scripts in our uh, mm-hmm. big um, multi-specialty clinic uh, at, at Sharp. But what, what I see happening is the insertion of very clever pieces of AI uh, to help physicians with their uh, workflow. I, we had a, a demonstration recently of uh, AI-assisted tool for uh, problem lists uh, where the uh, software actually looks at what's in the chart uh, in terms of the physician documentation as it's being put in and in the background gets ready to make suggestions but fine tunes the, the suggestions based on what it discovers in labs, what it discovers in the documentation of an imaging report 
or a uh, cardiac echo report, that kind of stuff, and then co- correlates it together. So it's not just looking like some of the old, older systems do for when the doctor says congestive heart failure and it rings the bell and says, no, 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 you can't do that. It's not specific enough. The, the new ones will say, well, we recommend acute systolic heart failure because we notice there's a cardiac ultrasound exam with an EF of 35%, which mm-hmm. according to the American College of Cardiology represents systolic heart failure. Oh, and by the way, there's also a brand new, just done this morning, uh, BMP on the chart or uh, a uh, 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 BNP that shows uh, a value greater than 3,000, which the uh, American College of Cardiology also says is associated with acute heart failure. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that uh, as long as you fit it into the workflow properly and don't have it with interruption after interruption after interruption, that can really uh, help the doc in terms of getting um, you know, the most complete diagnosis in because we know that that is incredibly important, mm-hmm. not just financially for the institution, it's going to be important financially for the physician and reputationally. It's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. If, if you end up with a higher observed to expected uh, mortality rate, for instance, you don't want to be associated with that. Right. And I would bet in most cases the reason for that is not due to poor care, but it's due to poor documentation or incomplete documentation. So that's some of the things I think mm-hmm. that AI is going to make a big difference in. And mm-hmm. AI, I think, will also help us get rid of these nuisance alerts that some of the EMRs and some of the deployments of the EMRs uh, have been burdened with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's 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 super fascinating, and I agree with you. Yeah, it seems like AI has this opportunity to really be able to take these thresholds, plug them into the system, be able to you know adapt off of these stress thresholds, and then trigger the right things to happen, the right insights, the work, the right workflows. Um, and it's almost like, you know, we need to go from common se- or we can go from common sense to super sense pretty quickly. It doesn't need to be like extraordinary, but kind of reasonable uh, incremental levels of innovation, uh, you know, in these parameters of what you're thinking about. And it's uh, it's such it's such an opportunity, right? Like how many EHR installations are there across the country, across the world, let alone like there's some like top three to five <laughs> thresholds that could be plugged in. That could trigger some things. Um, it's it's fascinating to think what is what is possible. So um, no, I appreciate you elaborating more. Uh, you know, Rick, on this on this point of you know evolving to a smarter EHR workflow system. Um, what's another similar, not similar, but what's another topic that you're fascinated with? We ha- we've we've had one or two people go a little bit uh, talk a little bit about genomics on our show. But you mentioned genomics. There's so many other themes going on in healthcare. What what other themes have you catch your attention these days? Well, I, I think one of the things that it depends on where on where and what your organization has done. But I think that at Sharp, we're certainly ready to take a look at variability, variability in care, variability in our all of our clinical practices and all of our uh, healthcare practices. Um, our business practices. We're, we're fortunate that over the years, we have been able to maintain a, a, a very reasonable cost per unit of service level 
uh, that you know, quite frankly, a lot of other organizations uh, would envy. But one of the things we have not done yet that we should be doing um, is looking at variability with, within our system. We're four main hospitals, two big medical groups, and we think that there are opportunities not just to save dollars, but quite frequently the the best practices are the most standardized practices. And I, I, I don't call that cookbook medicine or recipe mm-hmm. medicine at all because I have um, nothing but trust in the ability of physicians to know when uh, a uh, separate path is required because of some you know unusual findings, unusual situations. Yes, every patient is a little bit different, but there generally is a common pathway uh, you know once we get the diagnosis, established in terms of the most efficient way uh, to treat the patient. And I think that we should pay closer attention to doing that. Um, But I recognize that uh, physicians will always need the ability to hit the pause button and say, wait a minute, there's something that doesn't really make sense here or add up here. And we are going to go down a slightly different path. But I think that's the exception, um, not the rule. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's always, uh, you know, this, this, uh, you know, debate, but you know, opportunity on, you know, templatizing rep- recipes, but uh, you know, standardization in general. So I appreciate you sharing, you know, your thoughts on on this point. Um, along a similar line, right? So you know, we're, we're we are entering like a world where things that can and should be standardized are 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 being enabled to do so, but. Along the lines of the future, Dr. LeMoyne, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your vision of the future in healthcare. What has you excited? Um, what are, said another way, what are some things that you believe in health that haven't been proven yet, but you'll probably, you know, in your heart, you're going to see these things uh, happen in the future? Well, that's, that's, uh, that's uh, a way of putting things I haven't heard before. I love it. I have to tell you, I, um, I look at the extreme way healthcare is done in both Canada and the United States. They are kind of uh, as far apart as you can uh, get. Uh, probably a lot of people in the American audience don't realize that in 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 Canada, you know, it's single payer. Mm-hmm. It's single payer, and that single payer is the provincial government. Uh, usually helped out by the uh, by the federal government, but there there are five simple rules that the federal government laid down a long time ago for uh, Canadian me- Medicare, and those are interpreted and carried out by the um, provincial governments. Mm-hmm. Physicians, for the most part in Canada, are still in private practice; they still make a good living, um, and yet um, there is no second opinion. Uh, for procedures uh, in, uh, in, in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it's this notion that uh, we're all in it together. And uh, Medicare is um, one of the cultural elements that Canadians identify as being Canadian. Mm. The question I get asked a lot of the time is which one is better? <laughs> there is no better. They're different. Right. One's not better, one's not worse. 
And the culture of the United States and the culture of Canada, I've been an American citizen for over 20 years, the culture of the United States is very different than the culture of Canada. It's not better, it's not worse, it's just different. And the uh, single payer model uh, in, in, in Canada fits them well, and the current model in the United States fits us well, but it is um, often regarded as being uh, too expensive. And unfortunately, hospitals get targeted as being a big, big part of the expense there because it's where more and more, I believe it's because more and more of the care uh, has been centralized or focused around hospitals. So right. I, I, I'm exec- expecting to see a resurgence of primary care uh, in the United States. I'm expecting to see a resurgence of the role of primary care physicians uh, in in particular uh, as, as kind of playing a much more active role in coordinating the care of patients, especially patients that are in some kind of pop, pop health organization that mm-hmm. takes a longer term view, um, not necessarily cradle to grave, but you know more than a single encounter uh, mm-hmm. as, as hospitals uh, are often uh, uh, stuck with. So it, it's an incredibly exciting time right. to be in medicine. And I, I think the way we deliver care is going to undergo as many exciting transformations as is the care that we actually deliver with all of the progress that we see today. Great, great. Yeah, no, this is powerful. I appreciate you outlining those macro pieces and, and that contrast between, you know, obviously US and Canada, but yeah, and I agree with you. It is a very uh, opportunistic, but but fascinating time right now in medicine and healthcare. Um, along those lines, and again, kind of going back to the beginning of our uh, of our um, conversation here, you know, you you have this contrast of you know focusing on technology, uh, processes, administrative uh, items at a, at a macro level at Sharp, and then you still take night calls. Um, you've been doing this for a while. Um, sometimes I always ask our guests, you know, you've seen so many patterns being in healthcare. What are some things on a personal basis from your own well-being perspective that you've experienced throughout your life? Obviously, you had the story when, you know, the situation when you were 18 and, you know, how you overcame that. But you probably have developed your own thesis on, you know, nutrition or habits, maybe mindfulness, maybe uh, exercise. What are some things that make the difference for you on a well-being perspective that you always try and promote to your patients? I sleep whenever I get the chance. <laughs> so when, when 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 I'm on night call, I go in at seven o'clock. I used to go in with a, uh, a briefcase brief, brief case of papers mm-hmm. and paperwork to do. I no longer do that. I go in at seven. If there isn't something to do, I put my head down and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. I, I follow the Winston Churchill um, mantra when it comes to exercise whenever I get the urge I lie down until it passes mm-hmm. um, I've been blessed that my mom and dad were both uh, slim and had good um, had good metabolism so weight weight really hasn't been an issue I try and stay active uh, I don't exercise vigorously I do exercise uh, we all should but the other thing about personal mantra is I like getting along with people. Mm-hmm. I like getting along with the nurses and the physicians that I work with. I learned uh, long ago as a critical care physician uh, three things. Um, 
to say. One is uh, to nurses and other colleagues, what do you think? I've learned so much uh, mm-hmm. and have, um, you know, um, avoided so many silly mistakes by asking people uh, what they think so, so they can add to the, to the uh, knowledge around the patient. I've learned how to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I've learned how to say, I'm sorry. Because mm-hmm. as careful as I am, um, I, th- I think in the situations we find ourselves in critical care every now and then, uh, one can get uh, frustrated with some of the repetition that is unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, you know, o- other things that just come up, and you know, sometimes unfortunately we get a little short, uh, or we're not as careful as we could be. Uh, and like I say, I, I learned a long time ago back in. Uh, a tiny ICU in Nova Scotia to say I'm sorry, and I would encourage those three uh, practices uh, to be a part of everybody's uh, repertoire, uh, mm-hmm. especially in critical care. Nice, nice. No, I appreciate you hitting on those topics and kind of just the playback. Sleep's important, exercise is important, you know, experiencing as much as possible empathy, joy, and, and feedback as you go out through your day is really, really key. Um, just to play back a little bit. Yeah, those are two things that I've been trying to experience a lot more is have a beginner's mindset on things. Don't act like you know everything, right? Um, and if you can be open and ask people's opinions and try and get feedback, it can always make a better improved process, especially like on something you're doing for a long time. If you can improve on something 1% every single day, I say, you know, eventually that compounds. Um, you know, I'm the founder of a, a company called Health Hero and, you know, there, as a founder of a company, I've experienced as well um, this concept of joy deferral or happiness deferral, which shouldn't be the case. And so lately these days, as I am not, <laughs> at least this stage of our company, I'm not able to take frequent vacations, right? I have to integrate oh, joy yeah. into my life, right, as much as possible and, and, and great well-being. Um, but uh, so I just wanted to kind of elaborate a little bit. On, on your first point about sleep, though, uh, Dr. Lemoyne, and I, I want to be sensitive to your time here, but just my last question on, uh, it's something we haven't really talked about too much on this show, but sleep is starting to be really important, you know, and that body of knowledge about good sleep is coming more and more. Um, do you see your patients, you see in our society that people are having trouble sleeping more? And if you do, what are some things that you recommend for people to get good you know, natural sleep, because it does feel like that's the core of a lot of health problems is getting the best sleep possible. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I'm expert enough mm-hmm. to advise to advise other people. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think sometimes it, it's as simple as, um, you know, know, know the amount of sleep you need, um, mm-hmm. particularly at nighttime. If your sleep pattern is interrupted, uh, like mine is, like many, like for many of us with uh, with night call, don't be afraid to make up for it. I used to try and do the, you know, um, spend all day in an administrative role, be on call and be up all night. I mean, <laughs> you know, not see the sleep room once and then go and try and do another day's work the next day. Nah, doesn't work. Right. And, uh, you know, when, when you, my advice is when you need rest, when you need sleep, take it. And if it's in the middle of the after afternoon, if it's in the middle of the morning, uh, it's uh, power naps for me are just amazing. Mm. And I can do five or 10 minutes in my chair, mm. uh, in my cubicle, uh, and I'm gone. 
You know, you touched on a great point there. And a lot of time people ask me, uh, what keeps you up at night, doctor, in terms of, you know, administrative things you think about, projects mm-hmm. you're working on. I've learned to return with, nah, let's ra- I'd rather talk about what gets me up in the morning than what mm-hmm. keeps me up at night. And mm-hmm. the, the, uh, I love the way you refer to the joy of work, because if you're not feeling that, find another job. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. Right there with you. And um, no, this is great. Thank you so much for you know sharing your your stories. I guess to, to go a little bit deeper on, on the power nap, that is super fascinating and interesting. And, you know, I know like a lot of leaders like Ronald Reagan, you know, used to promote naps. Um, what's your what's your tip to take that power nap? You know, some people will say, I, oh, I can't find a quiet space. I can't quiet my mind in the middle of the day. I wind up just sitting there. And just thinking, but what's one or two things that you would recommend for people to to, to get into a power nap? I I don't think I don't think it 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 takes takes a whole lot. I I, I really find that it's not. I like to be able to do meditation, uh, and just mm-hmm. have never understood how to do that properly. But mm-hmm. I think anybody can sit down and kind of quiet their mind. You might have to put on a pair of earphones. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a little bit of soft music or something like that. Mm-hmm. But man, I can go up for five minutes, seven <laughs> minutes, and I am ready to go after that. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna in our office here we have a meditation slash well being room. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do it today. I'm gonna do it. I'll, I'll report back. <laughs> okay, um, good. <laughs> Dr. Lemoyne, this was super powerful. This was great. We covered a, a broad spectrum of of different topics, but most importantly hearing your story and having you uh, tell us about your experiences, your background, and your passions of what and projects that you're working on right now was super uh, rewarding. Um, Dr. LeMoyne, if, if our listeners want to get in touch with you or engage with you, what would be a great way to do so? I um, look at my email every day, and mm-hmm. it's Rick LeMoyne, all one word, at sharp.com. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the show as you go throughout the year and work on other projects. Obviously, of course, love to have you back in the show. Recap what you're seeing. And uh, to our listeners out there, again, this is the Pop Health Show. The show is for people that have a passion for making other people healthier in this world. Uh, Dr. Lemoyne, thank you so much again. Thank you so much. Thank you.